Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Few people had ever heard of the island nation of Kiribati southwest of Hawaii 18 months ago. But Kiribati is sinking as sea levels rise. And one citizen struggled to escape the island and win refugee protection in New Zealand, vaulted it, climate change and migrants to international attention. Now, Canada has boasted of its open arms when it comes to those seeking safety from persecution. Still, there's no legal route to Canada for someone forced to leave their home because of climate change. Today, we unveil a new approach backed by refugee lawyers in this country and look at why climate migration isn't just an international issue. It's also happening right here, right now. The ruling in the Kiribati case from a UN Human Rights Committee opened the door to potential climate change asylum claims. And now the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers has some proposals for the federal government. In an upcoming report, it calls for shifts in law and policy to protect those who may come to Canada, at least in part because of threats linked to climate change. The association shared a draft version of the report with us, and Warda Shazadi Mian joins me now to talk about it. She's one of the authors. Hello. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I don't sense there are a lot of people trying to come into Canada because of climate change, so why write this report now? We were approached by a number of media organizations in response to the release of the Human Rights Committee decision asking what Canada's response ought to be. And we know that the numbers are going to increase in the future. And so we really thought it was a good opportunity as an organization to step back and take stock of what policy options exist, the scale of the problem, what other countries are doing, all with a view of providing some practical policy options. In your research, did you get some sense of of what it is like in the rest of the world? How many people are displaced due to climate-related reasons? Yeah, so there are a number of estimates out there. Um, One of the most commonly cited ones is an estimate by the World Bank that says by the year 2050, there will be 143 million climate migrants. Most of these migrants will be coming from three regions, which is Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Southeast Asia. Now, as the law stands right now in Canada, tell me what would happen to someone who arrived from, say, an island nation that's slowly sinking, and that person tried to claim refugee status in Canada. The way it stands right now, there's nothing in the policy that requires immigration officers to specifically turn their mind to the plight of climate migrants. Given all that then, how would you define a climate migrant? One proposed definition of a climate migrant that um, our association is looking into is a climate migrant is a person who is outside their country of nationality or um, residence. And that country has been or will be during their lifetime affected by either short-term or long-term environmental disaster 
or degradation. And if that person is returned to that country, they face on account of that disaster or degradation a risk to their life liberty or security of the person. Now, Canada has in the past helped people who have been affected by natural disasters like the earthquakes in Haiti or man-made catastrophes like the downing of a Ukrainian Airlines flight in Iran by granting them at least temporary status in Canada. And in your report, you're recommending extending that kind of treatment to those displaced because of climate change, climate migrants, as you would say. How and why? One of the ways that we have responded to, for instance, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti or um, the 2004 tsunami was by creating a class of individuals for humanitarian reasons. This is currently already a part of our legislation. Folks who are uh, applicants under this category and then are granted immigration status are permanent residents. So they become permanent residents in Canada, and they're eligible for citizenship after a certain period of residing in Canada. Now, another option that you suggest is that Canadians be allowed to privately sponsor those who are displaced in a program that's akin to the one that saw tens of thousands of Syrian refugees arrive in Canada. Tell me how that would work. And so this class allows Canada to look at refugee-like situations and create a permanent resident stream for them. The way that this differs from the first option um, is not only procedurally, because they are two different regimes and they have different processes, but also the private sponsorship would then allow private citizens like you and me to sponsor these folks, these climate migrants to Canada and help provide them with integration support. Now, you come to this with um, what I what I would say is, is some particular expertise because you arrived in Canada as a refugee yourself from Pakistan at the age of six. Um, given that, do you think that the atmosphere in Canada would be welcoming to those who say their home countries are no longer safe because of a warming planet? I think so. And um, it really depends on which day you ask me and which file I'm working on um, with respect to Canada's uh, orientation towards refugees and migrants. But I myself had a very, very welcoming experience to Canada, as did my family. And I think that there is an appetite to uphold an, a humanitarian tradition that Canada is lauded for globally. And what makes climate migration particularly interesting is that it's one of those cases where there's evidence, there's scientific evidence for what folks are going through. In a lot of different contexts within refugee claims, the assessment is highly, highly individual. And so there are issues of credibility at stake, for instance. In the case of climate migrants, um, this may still be the case to some extent, but it's scientific evidence that um, allows us to see what type of risk and what timeline uh, of risk the person is under. So I would be hopeful that um, given Canada's general orientation being as welcoming as it is and the specific context of climate migrants being vulnerable individuals who can support their, their claims by so much evidence, that it would be it would be a positive fit for them. What do you think it would mean then to, to those who would arrive on our shores um, seeking safety from climate change? I mean, you've, you've also dealt with a lot of refugee clients, so you probably have a sense of that. What would it yeah. mean to them? Yeah, absolutely. So I work with both refugees and migrants, as well as corporations who are settling a foreign national population. And 
the folks who are the most grateful are invariably refugees. They are or the migrants that really don't have um, any other option. And so the type of gratitude we see in these folks is often quite overwhelming and the ways that their lives change is also quite overwhelming. And so when a person is in a situation like that and they're given a lifeline, it's the most meaningful thing that can happen in their life, of course. Warda Shazadi Mian, thank you very much for your time and for the research. Thank you so much for having me. We reached out to Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada on this. The department agreed that climate change is the challenge of a generation. And in the event of a natural disaster, it says decisions are made on a case-by-case basis to grant people protection. David Boyd has looked at these challenges from a global perspective. He's the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, and he's also an Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia. Hello. Hello, Laura. How big a challenge do you think climate migration is right now and what it could be like in the future? I think right now that climate migration is one element of the complex reasons that people are migrating all over the world. But at this point, I would say it's a minor contributor. But unless we take urgent action to address the climate emergency, we're talking about this trickle turning into tomorrow's flood of migrants. Now, um, you, you talk about it being one factor. Do you see a link between environmental degradation and migration? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that in places such as the dry corridor in Central America or in Southern Africa, that the impacts of climate change, whether they be exacerbating droughts or contributing to the increased frequency and severity of these vicious tropical storms, typhoons and hurricanes, it is definitely making life more difficult in circumstances that for millions of people is already difficult. And so it can be the tipping point that makes people make that very difficult decision to leave their homes and their communities and and to migrate. Have you met people in that situation in your work as special rapporteur? I have met people from a number of countries who have migrated to other places or who are considering migration as a result of what can only be described as the impacts of climate change today. And I think that's a really important point is that so many Canadians continue to think of climate impacts as some kind of future scenario. But for people in Fiji that I met who were displaced and rendered homeless by tropical cyclone Winston in 2016, I mean, that cyclone was the strongest tropical storm to ever reach land in the Southern Hemisphere. And that's directly attributable to climate change. And so, you know, these people are now living in really difficult circumstances in, you know, basically slums on the outskirts of Suva, the biggest city in Fiji. And there is no question that they are, from a science perspective, you could put the label on their climate migrants. Uh, You bring up Fiji and, and the report from the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers also makes mention of Fiji's decision to offer asylum to refugees from other Pacific islands facing climate change. I'm wondering what you think of of Fiji's offer. Well, I think it's extraordinarily generous. I mean, while I was in Fiji on a UN mission, I actually traveled to a village called Vuni Dongaloa, which is one of the first communities in the world that had to be completely relocated because of climate change. They moved from this idyllic tropical paradise right adjacent to the ocean to a new uh, location about three kilometers inland. And so 
it was heartbreaking to see because these people for many, many generations have been so directly connected to the ocean for everything in their life, their economy, their culture, their health, their food. And now they're, it's a quite a grueling three kilometer hike in hot, humid conditions down a steep trail to the ocean. And so uh, older people, pregnant women can no longer actually directly access the ocean. And yet it's those people in Vuni Dongaloa who are indigenous and who have a fairly substantial area of land in Fiji who have said, we would welcome other people from Pacific islands to come and, and move to our land if they need to do so. And I just thought for people who have suffered such horrific consequences of climate change to have such huge generosity and compassion for others was truly striking. Is it something Canada and other nations should emulate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Canada, as one of the wealthiest countries in the world with more land and more resources than almost every other country in the world, should be at the forefront in terms of generosity to other countries and also at the forefront in taking the kind of urgent action that is scientists are telling is absolutely necessary to address the climate emergency. Okay, uh, but I can see some in Canada saying, if we open the doors to this, where does it stop? How do you decide who gets in and who doesn't? Yeah, we have a pretty well-established immigration and refugee program here in Canada. And, uh, you know, it's a long way from a lot of these countries to Canada. So we're not facing the immediate migrant and refugee pressure that uh, Europe is facing with people from the Middle East and Africa because those regions are so close to Europe. Um, I think that there's no question Canada could and should be doing much more, both in addressing climate change and in opening our doors to more more migrants. Okay, I want to come back to that in a second, but I want to come to this report that you prepared for the United Nations. Um, you concluded that a safe climate is a vital element of the right to a healthy environment. And I'm wondering in that context, what happens or what obligations does the world have when a safe climate no longer exists in certain parts of the world? Well, we're already there, Laura. So we really have three sets of obligations under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And then we have a, a set of humanitarian obligations, I would say. So under the Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement, we have to mitigate, uh, we have to do ad adaptation, and we have to address loss and damage. So mitigation is basically reducing emissions and increasing carbon sinks to absorb greenhouse gases. And we have not done a good job of that in Canada. You know, our emissions have continued to rise since 1992. Adaptation is critically important in, in adapting to climate impacts before places become unsafe. And then loss and damage really goes to what happens when the climate is unsafe. So think of a country in the Caribbean like Dominica that in the last six years has been struck by two Category 5 hurricanes. How can a small low-income Caribbean nation rebuild from those devastating impacts, which damaged or destroyed over 90% of the buildings in that country. Well, that's where loss and damage comes in. And wealthy countries have made this commitment 30 years ago, but have not yet delivered on it. So that's something where the small island developing states and the low-income countries have proposed mechanisms that would raise finances to provide for loss and damage, things like an international air passenger levy or an international shipping levy, which could, on an annual basis, contribute billions of dollars to compensating those countries so that they can rebuild from the climate change impacts that are happening today. 
in a sense, isn't that wouldn't that be in in the developed countries' interest because they can deal with mitigation and actually have people stay where they are? Absolutely, and so that's our obligation under the climate change accords. That's also our obligation under the United Nations Global Compact on Refugees and the Global Compact on Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration is to assist countries in the global south to proactively improve living conditions so that there's less of an impetus for migration. And how's Canada doing on that front? Well, unfortunately, not very well. You know, we love to think of ourselves as a generous and compassionate country, but if you actually look at the rate and the amount of official development assistance Canada provides, we're at somewhere around a quarter to a third of what the Scandinavian nations are currently providing. And so, you know, we have a long ways to go before we can say we're putting our money where our mouth is. Now, to go back to this this idea of the right to a healthy environment, um, I want to clarify, you, you want all nations to embrace this, endorse it, codify the right to a healthy environment. Canada is one nation that so far hasn't done that, and I'm wondering what you think of that. Yeah, so currently there are 156 out of the 193 UN member states that recognize the right to a healthy environment, either in their constitutions, their legislation, or in regional human rights treaties. Canada is one of the 37 countries that does not yet recognize this right. But I'm really enthusiastic about a new bill that's before Parliament to amend the Canadian Environmental Protection Act to recognize the right to a healthy environment. So that's going to be an enormous step forward. And it's also critical that Canada support a new UN resolution on the right, right to a healthy environment, which is expected to come to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly as early as this fall. I'm wondering then, as we move forward with all of this, we're facing this challenge. Um, Do you think Canada is really grappling seriously with what is happening and what is going to happen when it comes to the global movement of people, both outside Canada's borders and inside? You know, I think we're starting to get serious about mitigation to climate change, about reducing Canadian emissions. It's taken us 30 years to sort of stop dithering and come up with a serious climate plan. But that is finally in place, you know, with rising carbon taxes and a number of other initiatives that the federal and provincial governments are taking. I still think there's a ton of work for Canada to do in terms of adaptation and preparing for future climate impacts. And as I said, Canada has, along with all of the other wealthy nations, done absolutely nothing to address loss and damage, to address these devastating impacts that are already hitting low-income countries and small island developing states. So there's there's a huge gap between where we are and where we need to be. And, you know, I have this privilege of having been to Fiji, having been to Kenya, having been to northern Norway and, you know, meeting with people whose lives are really being dramatically disrupted by climate change. And when you meet those people and you see the circumstances in which they're living, you cannot help but have your heart go out to them and understand at a deep human level, the need to take this problem with far greater sense of urgency than Canada has done to date. I mean, this is a crisis today that threatens to turn into a catastrophe tomorrow, unless we really step up our level of action. I thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Thanks very much, Laura. So David Boyd talked about imagining what it's like for a Caribbean country, a small island, to rebuild after mass devastation. Climate change is making hurricanes more severe, meaning more lives and livelihoods lost, and that creates a complex web of choices that force some to leave their homeland. Our next guest knows this firsthand. My name is Gabriel Aladwa. 
I am from the Caribbean island named St. Lucia. I came to Canada as a migrant farm worker. Presently, I am an organizer with the collective Justice for Migrant Workers. Gabriel Aladois' life changed nearly overnight when Hurricane Thomas hit St. Lucia in 2010. Two years later, he came to Canada under the Migrant Farm Workers Program. My life before Hurricane Thomas is um, I was at that stage in my life where I had just spent one year living my dream job. And what is my dream job? To be self-employed. And to make it even better, my income was diversified doing five different things. And I felt so confident that even though one income was affected, that, you know, I would have four sources of income that would help me to live a decent and fair life. When I thought my income was diversified, the hurricane proved me wrong. Now, you, you've described this life that you were living. You were happy enough. You were doing work. You were supporting your family. And then October 2010, Hurricane Thomas hits the island. What do you remember about that day? What happened during the day, it was really, really windy and rainy. Lots of rain. So there were lots of floods. And what happened, it was very, very obvious that the bananas, bananas and plantains, these are the main crops. They are surface feeders. They, they do not have a deep root system. So it's, they, they snap so easily. And it was so easy to see during the day, throughout the day, you see bananas snapping, snapping. They cannot withstand the, the force of the winds. Um, also, because of the constant rain, the rivers were flooded. Lots of places were flooded. And lots of people were, were busy um, moving around, watching what was happening. And at the same time, trying to salvage what they had. Because during that time, the wind was strong enough to blow down some roofs. What kind of damage did you suffer personally? For me personally, I suffered lots of damage. I was a beekeeper. My hands were destroyed. Another thing I was doing, I was um, operating a greenhouse. It was a 30 feet by 60 feet greenhouse. Then the convenience store, um, literally, I had to close down because um, the buying power wasn't there. So my direct livelihood was impacted. So you were, in effect, devastated. You had nothing left? That knocked me to the lowest point in my life. What is the lowest point in my life? To be unemployed with a family to support in a country with very little or literally no social safety. That's the lowest point in my life. So you decided that you were going to make your way to Canada. Well, I didn't decide. I was forced. And that's the thing. Being a migrant worker in Canada, if had I come here by choice, I would be a tourist. I'll be a visitor. But a migrant worker, uh, these are people who are forced. I was forced to come to Canada by the hurricane and some other factors, not by choice, but by circumstance. You were forced to come here, but you've now actually built a life and you've just welcomed your two children. I'm wondering how you feel about that. To be spending time with the people that you love, that's the best thing in life, right? Being a migrant worker in Canada, one of the injustices that we face is we are separated from our families. And that is what the hurricane did to me. It forced me to move away from my family. And now that I'm able to be with my family, that's natural medicine to me. Is there any part of you that that wishes to move back to St. Lucia and and reestablish a life there? Um, yes, absolutely, yes. Being raised, born and raised in the country, you, you get accustomed to so many things, yes. However, knowing that there's very little or no social safety net, knowing that we are exposed to hurricanes six months of the year, these are serious, serious factors that would surely keep me here in Canada. I'm wondering, though, what, what do you hear from friends and family back home um, about climate change and how it's affecting their lives? 
they're, they're so concerned in so many ways because in St. Lucia, the average home is not built up to standard. That is a serious concern to them. What do you wish people understood about migration stories like yours? One thing I would like them to understand, number one, people are forced to migrate, to become migrant workers. And why is that? A lot of it, not all of it, a lot of it is because of the activities of the richer, the industrialized countries. They are the ones causing the problem, exploiting the environment. But we in this global south are the ones paying the price. I thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you for this great opportunity. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. St. Lucia is in the hurricane zone, but it's escaped many storms with only some damage. There is, however, constant concern about rising sea levels and what hurricane season will bring each year as extreme weather increases the risk to the island. Of course, natural disasters, lost homes, and income linked to climate change aren't just distant events. This month, dozens of families near Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, fled their homes after a wildfire grew to more than 40 square kilometres. And in the Northwest Territories, flooding severely damaged homes around Fort Simpson and Jean Marie River. CBC reporter Anna Demaray caught up with Gail Sanguez, and she described what it was like to watch the water rise. I was at my home. We couldn't stay there any longer, so we got out when the water started rising toward our place Mm -hmm. and in the creek, because we're situated by the creek area, and the water went right level with the ground. And when it started going over, um, that's when we all started getting out of the community. What's it been like watching all of this? Very sad, emotional for everybody, just seeing, like, all the houses, people not being able to go back into their homes, especially the younger people and some of the elders that are like out camping and stuff. And this weather don't help one bit. (laughs) We had snow, we have rain, and we still have rain. And it's just emotionally wrecking for everyone. And like for myself too, yeah. Natural disasters, lost homes, and income linked to climate change aren't just distant events. According to our next guest, they're also forcing people to move within Canada. George Benson is the co-founder of the Climate Migrants and Refugees Project. and He's the co-author of a new report that examines how worsening floods, storms and fires are forcing people and governments to grapple with new challenges. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. What have you learned about how climate change is forcing people out of their homes or their communities uh, in Canada? Well, what we've learned uh, is first and foremost that it's happening. It is a real threat. It is a real challenge that people uh, experience every day. And importantly, it is something that disproportionately impacts 
poorer, low-income, rural, and indigenous communities across the country. Yeah, now, you're about to release some new research, as I mentioned, and, and this research is focused on, on British Columbia. What are the main findings? Um, the general takeaways are, as I said, that this is an issue that impacts people here in the province already. We've had tens of thousands of people displaced by floods and forest fires, especially in 2017, when there were over 60,000 people uh, who were displaced and there will be, sadly, continue to be many more. In terms of the people working on this, we're very lucky in British Columbia to have many practitioners working on climate change adaptation and, and emergency preparedness and other social services. But there's not yet a, a unified vision of climate change displacement as, a, as an issue that you know a number of different players and practitioners and groups need to work on as a as a unified area of practice we're not we're not quite there yet why do you think that is well it takes time for people to digest a very complicated issue like climate change adaptation and climate change impacts in their practice you have you know subject matter experts say in forest fires who are very you know dutifully and 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 carefully working away in their in their silo in many ways but how does that interact with and forest fires are, are an interesting example because there is a lot of interplay between say forestry management and forest fires and forest fire management but um you know if we're talking about depleted glaciers and there's less spring freshet and the and the ground that the forests lie on is drier and then we're trying to pursue more sustainable forestry management practices the interface between those two changes, one human, one non, um, can really render the difficulty of you know the forest fire management folks uh, pretty immense. So it can be difficult for them to you know on the one hand take a holistic view because it's kind of everything's at play. On the other hand, they they are sort of bound by <laughs> the need to implicate all this data and all this work that's going on in other areas that they're not necessarily expert in. So it's the holisticness with which climate change impacts us remains one of its most central challenges in responding to it. Okay, so let me ask for bottom line here. What was your goal in producing the report? We wanted to draw a thread between the reality that folks facing climate change displacement in Canada have commonalities and similar experiences in some cases to those facing it perhaps in the global south. And if we're talking about a response to the global implications of climate change and migration or displacement, we need to recognize that there's a responsibility here at home too. Give me an example here. What What is the similarity between someone having to um, evacuate their home because of a forest fire and someone perhaps in an island-based nation uh, whose whose island is sinking what mm. what's the commonality there well it's less so a commonality of the immediate disaster or the immediate impact right forest fires and sea level rise are, are very different things but if you're talking about cultural dislocation from let's say you know use a small island developing state and an indigenous nation in canada I, I'm not Indigenous, I won't pretend to understand the specific connection to the land. But if you're talking about the loss of home in multiple places for people who've been rooted in a community for a long time, there's an immediate commonality. If you sort of zoom out from a, a specific context of, of, say, Indigenous folks and just think more generically, it's traumatizing to lose a home, right? It's traumatizing to lose your job. Uh, it's traumatizing to suddenly not know where you need to go. Those sort of basic human experiences are deeply similar. And, and part of our our call to arms here is to, you know, recognize that we need to be mindful and justice oriented uh, in working with everyone who faces these climate change impacts. And, and that those human experience elements are really what we want to draw out as commonalities. Now, we, we've seen wildfires and floods not, not just threaten people's homes, they've destroyed homes. When people are forced out here in Canada, what do you think they need? What is the best way to help them? Well, it, I mean, it, it's hard to describe succinctly, but the best way to maybe summarize it is to say we need an integrated approach. We need to have 
a whole agenda of preparation to ensure that as few people as possible face displacement in, in general. We need to have preparation in the sort of classic climate change adaptation sense to make sure that those who do face a, you know, a pretty immediate and explicit threat are either removed from that threat. So things like buying out land that faces sea level rise or forest fire, what have you, um, or there's you know, enough armoring in place they can withstand one of those challenges. But if we do get to a point where there is displacement, then we need to have a whole suite of social services programs, of financing, um, of counting. You know, it's very difficult to track people if they're displaced in Canada. We still have questions of if folks have made it back home after certain disasters and so on. So it's it's a whole integrated suite, but it, it should run the gamut from let's make sure no, like as few people as possible face displacement down to then if people do face displacement, they are taken care of, they're accounted for, and they are provided, they're afforded their full rights to mobility and safety and, and, and the sense of place and belonging if and when they do face that displacement. So it's a complex problem, but we want to see it addressed across that whole whole spectrum. Can you talk to me about just how needed this kind of thinking and planning is across the country? It's critical. The, the short answer is that it's absolutely critical. And there are pockets of it, right? There, if you look at some of the more vulnerable communities and provinces in Canada, um, Prince Edward Island is thinking about this a little bit for certain home owners who face uh, immediate erosion or sea level rise challenges. Um, Nunavut and across the, the Northern Territories, there's certain conversations in their adaptation agenda that think about, for example, permafrost melting and, and how that displaces infrastructure and homes um, that rely on a you know, stable ground to stay in place. It's starting, but the reality is that Canada uh, spends a pittance on adaptation. And even after the Attorney General's report a few years ago, or I should say the Coordinated Attorneys General's report um, across the country, we still face a tremendous adaptation spending deficit. We have billions of dollars of infrastructure, but forgetting that, we have many, many people who face um, immediate and in some cases longstanding threats to their well-being because of climate change. And so we think there is absolutely a need for this work to be done across the country and for an integrated approach, because some of these will be transboundary issues, you know, a river that's that's a high risk of flooding leads into another province, or there's there's a need for integrated infrastructure approaches across borders in, in water spaces and so on. But, you know, without the whole nation on the on the file here, I think we will miss people. And that's absolutely something we want to avoid. I'm curious to know why this is so important to you. You're you're doing this um, on a volunteer basis on your downtime from your full time job. Why is this so important to you? It, it, it's a deeply there's you know I I could tell you all the climate justice values and principles that are important that me and the co founders of of the Climate Markets and Refugees Project have, um, and that's a deep those are deeply held values that we think are important for a country like Canada, a province like BC to uphold. But for me, I think of, you know, I think of my family and the life experiences I've had. My family came from Ukraine to Canada 100 years ago, facing, you know, displacement in, in political and, and economic contexts. I want us to be a place that welcomes people who, uh, in the same way that my family was welcomed here over 100 years ago. And then in, in my personal life, I've seen up close and personal in the Philippines, in Bangladesh, where I've had the privilege to live and work, people already facing these challenges in very immediate circumstances. And I think if we're a country that wants to live up to our values of, of equity and democracy and, and being a force for justice, we need to address this. We can't, we can't assume that someone else is going to handle it. I thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. And that does it for us this week. Special thanks this week to Hannah Paulson, Joanne Stassen, and Anna Demaray at CBC Yellowknife. And thanks every week to associate producers Serena Renner and Jennifer Van Evra, Producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. 
Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.